Nobles. This is Paul Nobles from Eat Perform. I am sitting here with April Blackford. April, do you want to say hi to everyone? Hi, everyone. So this is our Monday evening podcast, and we have a bunch of people that are Eat Perform members that are sitting here, and they can potentially ask us questions. We have a couple of things that we're going to talk about. The the biggest thing we're going to talk, it's not going to really take as long as most people would think, but we'll kind of cover the basics of why starting from a baseline is better than starting from a random place. And I think when you guys hear that story, you will agree that it leads you to more of a level of understanding rather than kind of this confusion. What happens for a lot of people is they will do something as it relates to fat loss and they don't necessarily know where they were starting to eat they don't really know what their plan was they don't know how many carbohydrates fats things of that nature i know for a lot of people that have been around eat perform for a while this is going to be old news but you know it's always nice to hear something and there might be something that comes up certainly there were conversations that i had over the last couple of days that might be interesting to this conversation so it's always kind of a nice way to kind of redo things again um anything interesting coming up from your perspective april lately i mean there was there was the whole emasculating the two guys in the gym <laughs> yeah that was pretty awesome well, of course, I was I was telling you that that was kind of that was kind of fun. I did I did finally get past my sticking point on my deadlift and hit two seventy five, where I was stuck at two seventy forever. So that's pretty awesome. So just been riding the game train for you know a couple weeks now. There you go. Um, but April was telling me a story before the podcast started about how um, she was lifting heavier than a couple of the guys at the gym, and you know, I mean. It, we're all human beings, and so you kind of compare yourself in those scenarios. And so it's kind of nice that when you've kind of achieved the level of fitness, you know, it's 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 something that you can look back on and go, okay, well, these guys are just coming up, but it's sort of nice to know that I've been able to put in enough work. And I'm sure if either of them needed any help, April would be the first to jump up and help them. So. One of the things that I wanted to talk about that was was kind of an interesting podcast that I was listening to. I listen, <laughs> I listen to a lot of weird stuff, and one of the things that I was listening to was an economics podcast. And um, for a poker player, you would think I would be a bigger data nerd than I am. I'm actually not a huge data nerd. I am more of more into kind of the psychology of how most things work, right? And uh, what was interesting is, and it's, it's really interesting because it's the second time in the last couple of days. You ever notice how like you you hear something that you've never heard of before, and then all of a sudden you hear about it all the time? I would yeah. love to know what that's called because because that happens to me all the time. Um, so what they were talking about was, uh, it's called prospect theory. And what prospect theory is, 
is the best example would be if I said to April, well, it's the best example is probably the Steve Harvey example, where he let the one woman know that she won the Miss, <laughs> Miss Universe, um, and then it turns out that she didn't win Miss Universe. But prospect theory, the basic idea of prospect theory is that nothing really changed for that woman, right? So it was really the expectation that came after the fact that, you know, I mean, it netted out to the same. She was not going to be Miss Universe no matter what. But just that expectation led to some level of frustration. And so they were doing experiments with monkeys on prospect theory where they were teaching monkeys about money. And they would give the monkeys tokens and then they would give them food. And one of the things that would happen is they would initially, the monkeys would give them a token, the monkey would expect three items for that token, and then the person would take away one thing and the monkey would just lose it, you know? And how this applies to the way we think about food is very, very interesting. And one of the things that they talked about was the idea of denying yourself cheesecake. Right. Once um, once you start to take away, you know, energy dense foods or foods that you enjoy, you remember what it was like to have them and your life feels somewhat incomplete without them. And so prospect theory actually does apply to the way that we view food. And I think when we talk about having some level of flexibility, one of the things that you'll often see with you know eating disorders like orthorexia and things of this nature where um once again things of this nature you know there, there's certain if you don't listen to this podcast often there's certain words that i just cannot help myself from saying i'll also say um let me give you an example quite a bit so you can listen for all these things and some people actually joke that it's a drinking game for themselves um but when you talk about orthorexia and having a disordered relationship with food, a lot of that stems from prospect theory and how you sort of remember having this, you know, energy dense source that you enjoyed and then you start taking it away and you kind of snuggle up to the deprivation and that's what sort of causes the dysfunction. You know, there would be a lot of people that would argue that, you know, people with eating disorders or born with eating disorders, you know, I have to tell you I'm not up on the science of that kind of thing. But I can say that um, there is a lot of psychology as it relates to constantly trying to deny yourself foods that you enjoy. And when you talk about trying to constantly deny yourself foods that you enjoy, at the end of the day, you're going to struggle with doing that in moderation if it's a 100% type thing. But if you allow for some level, uh, you know, one of the most interesting things about eat reform is how people talk about 
their cravings and how their cravings tend to go away because when you're eating an adequate amount of food most of the time, you know that you can have some of the things that you enjoy and you realize that if you don't have it on that day, there may be some day in the future so you're not really denying yourself. And a lot of that comes back to kind of addiction theory and and the way that you know they're sort of seeing a lot of the studies as it relates to addiction theory that the environment that is created around an addict or or really anyone is going to be more favorable and more successful if the environment is positive you know think of it like you know Disneyland for food you know if you can have foods that you enjoy if you can do things that you like you know i think that's what really is kind of a big differentiator for each reform but i thought that, i thought it was really interesting when you thought of it from the perspective of well one the monkeys you know um what they were talking a little bit about though was the fact that as human beings we tend to be able to master some of these things and it had me thinking about how people struggle with food and how restricting food is ultimately you know certainly some level of of discipline and moderation is always good but when you get to kind of this abstinence standpoint you know even with addiction you know the success rates of that kind of thing are very very low but they're much much higher if the environment is more conducive to the person kind of having some level of of an enjoyable life and you know food in moderation can be a part of that as long as you're not always thinking of it from the standpoint of down 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 so that's kind of the basic theory you know, it kind of it kind of goes back. We had this. We had similar conversations, not specifically in regard to the prospect theory, years ago when we first started the podcast. And it kind of relates to me. Whereas, I, at one point, I avoided chocolate because it was not in my clean category, and I thought it was hindering me from results. And I would I would avoid it and not eat it. But then when I ate it, I would eat all of it. Whereas now, in moderation. I can officially say that I've had chocolate every single day for the past three years and I've not overeaten it one single time. Yeah, so actually we're going to get to questions afterwards, but this was kind of coming up right off the bat and I think it's a good example of what we're talking about. So Brittany's saying, so what you're saying is you can have cookies in one of your meals if you wanted to, it wouldn't hurt. And when you think that it would hurt you, it would be some level of rigidity that is actually the problem, right? And so if you're always looking at things that the answers to your ultimate solution is going to be, you know, eating 1,200 calories, then you would naturally, from a mental standpoint, as it relates to prospect theory, the cookie would be bad in that scenario. But if you look at it from the standpoint of the good majority of the time you shouldn't be dieting and the good majority of the time you should be thriving, 
And that also can be an answer for fat loss because like April's saying, you know, you can deadlift 275 pounds, you can bench press 140, and most of that time you're thriving. And so a cookie can certainly fit in those scenarios. Now that doesn't mean that you would never have a time where you might eat at a little bit of a deficit. But most people find that embracing the misery of constantly eating less is not be is, is not the answer for them. And that's certainly what we've seen. Now, you know, I always kind of, you know, I think one of the most interesting things that I've heard recently was from the book Extreme Ownership, where he was talking about discipline equaling freedom. And what that basically means is when your life is confusing, what the things that you control and the things that you're able to kind of compartmentalize are going to make your life a lot easier. And a great example would be if you have your car keys in the same spot every single day, it's not chaotic where you're having a constant look for your car keys. So that's one little element of your life that as you take that away, like, you know, for me, um, laundry is a big one, you know, laundry can create kind of chaos. And I've probably got three to four loads of laundry that I have to do right now. And I know for a fact that my life is less chaotic if I have more clean clothes and ready. And, and, you know, as someone that teaches people to sort of compartmentalize, I'm not perfect. Right. And I don't always get, um, uh, you know, make these things priorities in my life. But I will guarantee you after this podcast, I'll throw in another load of laundry because it really is important to have a lot of those things nailed down. And what's, what's nice about it is when you have those things nailed down and you do have something come up, then you don't have chaos building off of chaos, right? And so from that perspective, you're more easily able to deal with it. So let's talk a little bit about what a baseline is and how you would create one. So for most people that are coming to eat to perform, you're either overeating, overeating your metabolism, or undereating your metabolism, right? So from that perspective, what we are going to try and talk to you guys about is establishing some level of understanding of where your body is at homeostasis and how to actually move that. Because one of the, one of the things that most people believe that actually isn't true is that their metabolism is static over time and that it's really not this dynamic thing that it actually is because on a day-to-day -day basis, you can positively affect your metabolism by a number of things. Um, you know, resistance training or weightlifting certainly would be one. Um, of course, any, any type of running and stuff like that. But in general, you know, what I'm really talking about is metabolic demand. And usually I'm going to be emphasizing muscle at that point because when you have more muscle on your frame, that's going to be more metabolically demanding on your system 
chance that you're going to be able to have a little bit more food or at least have a baseline that's a little bit higher. And then if we ever want to use some stored body fat, then we can work off of that baseline, which is a topic that we're actually going to cover later down the line. But I wanted to talk specifically about, you know, how you establish a baseline, where you go and kind of go from there. So any thoughts before we sort of jump into this topic, April? No, I'm already. So I think that a lot of people, when they seek out a fat loss solution, they naturally assume that they're overeating. And they probably are overeating, but they might not be overeating as it relates to where their metabolism wants to be. They might be overeating as it relates to where their metabolism is at. And so what we're going to talk about right now is how you get your metabolism to a normal range and the things that sort of affect that. And so I'll just jump right into what affects it the most. Um, basically, your dieting history or the time that you've eaten you know, under-eaten over time, that's going to be the biggest determinant. So you go, well, I don't really diet, right? But I'm a, I'm a clean eater. That's a little bit of what we were talking about earlier, where if you're avoiding energy-dense foods, you're also probably under-eating. Now, that doesn't make you a bad person. Um, it just means that you might not be maximizing the potential of what your body is. And I would say that we all are sort of missing some sweet spots there. You know, certainly um, you see examples of athletes and people that are genetically gifted and they're able to um, stay relatively lean without a whole lot of work. For most of us, though, it's some level of misunderstanding that has kind of stopped us from reaching the potential. And then once we have that baseline in place, then we can kind of go from there. So the two things that I would say most affect people as it relates to their metabolism and kind of keeping their, their baseline low is going to be the amount that they're eating on a daily basis, right? Because you know your body is basically going to adjust to the amount of fuel that you give it. And because of that, it's going to down-regulate. So you might think that your, you know, uh, you know, a great example that I'm thinking of right off the top of my head is that uh, digesting food is very metabolically demanding. And so if you're, you know, once again, if you're kind of living on chicken and kale and you only eat chicken and kale three times a day and your body is digesting that relatively easily and you're not providing, you know, enough food to thrive, you're really not asking your metabolism to do the job that it needs to do, right? Then when we look at, you know, so let's say that, you know, your three meals of, of chicken and kale actually equals somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 900 calories. And in that process, you've actually figured out to kind of 
mess with your hunger signal because we get this a lot where people say, you know, I'm not really all that hungry, but I'm very clearly under eating. Why is that? Well, once again, that's kind of a normal process. I think, you know, we often get into, well, my body's in starvation mode and, and, and these types of things. It really is sort of making, I feel like most people when they're saying that feel somewhat distance from the solution. They feel like something is happening to them. Like it's, you know, the rain came down on it and their body went into starvation mode. And actually they caused starvation mode because they're constantly focused on down, down, down as the solution. And what we're saying is, is that as you establish that baseline and as you gradually move that baseline up, staying weight stable, you're positively affecting your metabolism. And from there, you know, so if you look at chicken and kale person who's not very hungry at all, you know, basically sending all levels of dysfunction within their system, how are they going to see some level of fat loss at that level, right? You know, where do you go from 900 calories in chicken and kale? But if you were eating an adequate amount for what you do, and let's say your calories as a 5'4", 155-pound female would be 2,200 calories, now all of a sudden we can build a legitimate deficit, but we can't start from 900 calories. I think the fear that the good majority of people that have is that, okay, I know I screwed some shit up. <laughs> Right? They're, they're like talking to us, Paul, April, I absolutely screwed some shit up. I'm doing nothing but eating chicken and kale. It's equaling 900 calories, but I'm scared to death, you know, when somebody says that I'm supposed to be eating 2,200 calories because wouldn't I gain weight in that scenario? So I think that that is a good place for me to kind of, you know, bring to April and kind of hear her thoughts on it because um, once, once we In have the, that. Go ahead. absolutely agree about the, the chicken and kale person eating 900 calories. You know, like what you were saying, they're theoretically or, you know, factually, there is nowhere to go but down. You know, so what, you go to two meals of chicken and kale a day. You know, but the key thing there is, and I, I do talk with people day to day who are coming from an extreme underfed background and I always ask them the same thing. I always ask, you know, are you hungry? You know, uh, not really, you know, but then I always ask, do you ever have those moments where you just need to eat everything? You know, and majority of the time, most of them do, but there are a few that know they don't have it. They can stick to it. You know, it's not been a big deal, but the, the big, the missing piece of the puzzle should be the fact that, if someone is following the 900 calorie diet strictly and adhering to it for however long, why aren't they seeing result, results? Why aren't they getting leaner? Why aren't they getting stronger? Why aren't they getting better? You know, what they're going to say to you is, yeah, I don't get it. I'm so confused. You know, my body's clearly in starvation mode, right? So what we're trying to do is talk to you guys about how we can, kind of help from that perspective and 
you know, what may be a little bit of the expectation um, in, you know, as you go. Now we do, we are getting a few questions. We will address those as we go. We just kind of want to uh, plow through the topic at this point. And, but we, but we are getting very relevant, awesome questions. So when we talk about 900 calorie person who feels kind of painted in a corner, and let's say that that person is 38 years old and they've been dieting roughly since they were about 14. So they didn't start at 2200 and their metabolism might actually be at 900 from that, from that standpoint. And when we talk about your metabolism being at 900, you know, we're going to naturally assume that these pers these people are kind of fatigued, you know, maybe have trouble sleeping. There's lots of things that kind of happen to people that are eating in a way that their body, you know, kind of getting back to the prospect theory, you know, your body doesn't want to be deprived, right? And from a psychological standpoint, you can cause lots of issues there. And so if we're talking about someone with that level of, of deprivation for that long, it's probably going to be very smart for that person to walk into that baseline very, very slowly. The problem is, is they're only thinking of fat loss from the standpoint of down. But we know that the slower that you can do it, let's say that you have somebody that's eating 900 and chicken and kale and they're barely getting through the, through the day and they're living on caffeine. All right. So now we gradually start adding, let's say 50 calories and by, you know, 50 calories a week. And within two months, <coughs> excuse me, we've been able to add 400 calories to their overall plan keeping them weight stable, potentially a little bit of weight, which can end up being muscle over time, and we'll talk about why that would be. But basically with 400 calories over the course of eight weeks, now they're eating 1,300 calories. They have the energy to, to exercise. They're actually allowing themselves again to have some level of flexibility. So here's what happens to this person, okay? Previous to this, and this is the opposite of the question that we're being asked right now, but, but previous to this, the person had artificially affected their hunger signaling negatively, okay? So now they start eating some foods that they enjoy and their body remembers, hey, I like cheesecake. I like, you know, uh, things that have calories in them because those things give me energy and then I feel like doing things. So you have to be a little careful from that perspective because you are sort of playing with fire. In our book, you know, the manual for fat loss, we talk about this a lot and, and it's related to you know, the concept called metabolic flexibility. Metabolic flexibility is basically you're going to have the majority of the fats on the days that you're resting and then the majority of your carbohydrates on the days that you're working out. What happens for a lot of folks, though, is they start to get hungry 
because they're reintroducing food into the equation. And now all of a sudden, you know, they're working out six days a week because they're eating food and, you know, they kind of get into that earn the food mode, right? And so we want that person to really keep an eye on <coughs> some level of data. If mentally you can handle the scale, we would strongly encourage you to do that. Because when you're making major changes to the way that you eat, you want to make sure that you're tracking data along the way. If the scale gives you problems, then let's look at you know some type of waste measurements or, or something of that nature. So the end game really is just making sure that the changes that you're making as you reverse out of this are favorable and you're able to kind of upregulate your metabolism to the point where you're building lean tissue and that's an answer for fat loss. So, you know, a great example would be if you were to put on six pounds of muscle and replace, you know, six pounds of fat at, I can't remember what I said this person theoretically weighed, but I think it was 155. Essentially, you've changed 4% body fat in that scenario. And while a lot of people go, wow, that sounds like pie in the sky, that's not even close to pie in the sky. If somebody's been coming from an underfed background, they've been sort of deprived. And especially as we start to introduce more protein and more carbohydrates, you start to see that muscle protein turnover and then the body's actually get, starting to get signals to release stored body fat under certain conditions. And so absolutely there is a work component, but I want to make very clear that as you start to increase your energy intake, your energy output needs to you know, at least be close and you should keep an eye on it. And there's various things that you can do. One of the things that, that we'll talk to people about is what I just mentioned with metabolic flexibility, where you're going to do some level of carb cycling. And on the days that you're not working out, you might actually eat at a bit of a deficit in the beginning. So you're making sure that you're not gaining weight. The problem for a lot of people though, is they've lived in this restrictive 900 calorie chicken and kale way of thinking and you know mentally now they're allowing themselves and we will hear people say you know i just can't do that because you know mentally you know i can't shut the gate i would say that proceed slowly and as you proceed slowly you want to add you know if you're going to talk about having more carbohydrates having them post-workout is going to be a little bit better in the beginning if you're coming from a low-fat background i would say that some level of of long intensity work on those days is probably going to be more favorable because you're able to use more fats in, <laughs> in 
those types of workouts. So there are adjustments that you can make along the way because I think that you don't want to be in a scenario as you're reestablishing this baseline and as you're moving up from you know, 900 to 1300 to, to 1500 to 2200 ultimately. You don't want to, to, you know, if you go from 900 to 2200 in two weeks, you will absolutely gain a bunch of weight and then you will get frustrated. And, you know, you go, well, how long does it take? Well, it takes as long as it needs to take, right? I mean, it, you know, like I said, if you're started off at 14 and now you're 38, it might take a little bit longer for you. Anecdotally, what we've seen is that the better the athlete, the quicker they can move their calories up without a whole lot of problems. What we see is if the person doesn't have a lot of work capacity, they're better off taking it a lot slower. Any thoughts on what I'm saying there, April? Because I see you shaking your head on a few things yeah. like positively. I think you kind of hit it spot on in regards to the um, the part about, you know, increasing the, the work capacity a whole lot um, and your calories are still lower. You know, I was kind of I was kind of nodding my head because I was thinking along the lines of the 900 calorie person basically probably barely had enough energy to work out a couple times a week, really wasn't putting much into it because they just probably felt like crap and just didn't have enough energy. Now all of a sudden they've worked up to 1300 and even though they're still extremely low, they probably feel kind of brand new compared to how they felt. So all of a sudden they feel brand new. Their workouts actually kind of feel like, Hey, you know, I'm kind of doing a little better. And then all of a sudden their output, their exercise triples the amount that they were doing their activity, but their output is so far beyond the little bit amount that they've increased. You know, so like, kind of like what you were saying, you know, it's it, rather than increasing too, too fast, you know, going from three days a week of, of training or whatever it is that you do to now all of a sudden you're six days because you feel freaking awesome because you're eating 400 calories more. That's not always the answer, um, you know, and, and I do agree in regards to the the working up slowly, um, you know, breaking the mentality with the scale. It depends on the individual, you know what I mean? But, ab but ab Absolutely. I started to say, I, I've, I've actually worked with people who dieted for 20 years and they started reversing and, you know, could, could do it a little bit quicker and they saw great results, whereas someone else may need to do it a little bit slower. So each individual is, you know, is completely different in regards to that. But like what you were saying in regards to the data, having some data I think is key, whether it's the scale, whether it's measurements, pictures, something you can't just be, you can't just ignore and just be ignorant to the data. Because if you do that, you know, and then you, you mentally have accepted, okay, I know I need to eat more. And then you work towards that. And then two months later, your pants start feeling a little snug. You go on vacation. And then as soon as you come back, you're like, let me weigh myself. You know, and then you're up 14 pounds, and then you freak and you go back to the 900 calories. You know, it's it's really it's you know just got to be. So it, wasn't, it wasn't the more food that was a problem. It wasn't the vacation that was a problem. It was the 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 ignorance as it relates to data that was the problem. And you know, I realize we all have a difficult relationship with the scale. I mean, I definitely can relate to that from my past and even to this day. I mean, we, we all want to see 
kind of a positive result. You know, I mean, I've definitely had times where I wanted the scale to go up um, and, and I can relate to, you know, wanting the scale to go down at times. But when you don't want to know the information, it's because you have an expectation typically as it relates to lower and that if you're avoiding the scale, you probably know what's happening, right? And so you got to keep that in mind. And I think the other thing too, as we're establishing this baseline, now remember the, the end game here is to establish a baseline to create a healthy, thriving life where you're functioning as a happy individual and you've been able to compartmentalize a number of things and then you can potentially take one of those things out, which in this instance we'll talk about calories, and then use that to see a specific result. That's going to be something that's going to take a full podcast. We'll kind of go into that. We've probably actually covered that many times, but we'll kind of get people that information as needed. So the other scenario before we get into questions that I think is really kind of interesting because we, we, we sort of exaggerated the point to make the real point. But for most people that have been trying to get, you know, some level of fat loss and they're at 2,200 calories, that's where their body would like to be as it relates to their muscle and, and scientific data and stuff like this. But, you know, the, the, in an effort to try and see a specific result, they've actually landed at 1,500 calories, whether that be through some level of tracking or through some level of, of uh, intuitive eating. Essentially, what they've done is just downregulated their metabolism to a point where they're kind of stuck at 1,500 calories. And so what a lot of people resort to at that point, this is the type of thing that leads you down the path to 900 calories of chicken and kale, you know, and sleeping four hours a night and not feeling like exercising and all these different things. And so what we're really making an argument for is understanding how your body works and viewing yourself as some level of experiment over time. And so you can play with one piece or another. The problem, you know, we had a client that I was talking to today and she was really struggling and she's doing performance-focused fat loss. And I looked at her food log and I was, I was seeing her calories lower and she was telling me that, you know, she hasn't been able to work out very much so she was really resorting to higher fats and lower carbs and then when i looked at her food log she had been doing that for almost a week and a half but every single time she did a whey plus day and her calories went up and her carbs went up her weight went down yet she really wasn't noticing that pattern because it was sort of new into the process so what we did was we sort of reversed it you know we, we lowered her fats and upped her carbohydrates and she's seen more water release. What, what happens for a lot of people when they go too low carb for too long is that they actually hold on to belly fat through cortisol. 
And when you up your carbohydrates in that scenario, you're going to actually release some level of belly fat. Now, the, the thing about that is, is that we're talking about small amounts. I think there's a lot of people that don't really know how much bodily fat that they have. So they might be 38% body fat, right? And they do kind of what I just said, and they're actually able to release a little bit of water, but you know the scale might go down, but they look in the mirror and it's not vastly different. These are these are things that you can use to see a result, but they're not things that are going to get you an acute result. You don't go from 38% to 20% by upping your carbohydrates and lowering your fats over the course of four days. That's just not reality. And see, these are the conversations that the good majority of people don't tell you. And I would argue that that there's some equity in people confusing you. When someone's selling you something and they're not telling you the whole story, you would kind of wonder why aren't they telling you the whole story. I actually think that most people have had some level of success doing lots of things. You know, I think to somebody like Tim Ferriss who has kind of a slow carb diet, you know, my assumption is that Tim Ferriss does not eat like that all the time, but it's probably very good for book sales for everyone to believe that he eats like that all the time, right? And so the devil being in the details there, for you to be able to personally talk to Tim Ferriss and walk through how he personally approaches it and break down and stuff like that, that's just not really an option. And so when we're talking to you guys and, and we're talking about group coaching or becoming a member of Eat to Perform or something of that nature, really what we're trying to do is kind of get you guys to a point where we take something that may have worked in the past that stopped working and then you go, I don't understand. I lost 40 pounds doing paleo. Why is it no longer working and why am I actually gaining fat in the process? Well, we kind of do know those answers, right? And some of those answers have harder solutions. But if you're constantly defaulting to starvation, you know, then you're going to always be kind of uncomfortable and struggling. And so if we can get you to where a baseline of understanding is always happening. Now, does that mean that, that you have to constantly track your food or know your caloric intake? No. In fact, you know, I don't count my food the good majority of the time. But I certainly did at one point, and I have an understanding of what my baseline looks like, and so I'm able to kind of work off of that and the and the good majority of the time i'm actually eating you know for those that don't know or don't follow this podcast all this all that often you know i eat roughly 2700 to 3000 calories virtually every single day now in a deficit that's a little bit of a different story once again that's another podcast so any thoughts on what I'm saying there? Because I, I think, you know, we sort of covered the 1,500 to 2,200 scenario. <laughs> um, 
So then let's talk about the, the, the other scenario. One thing that people say to me all the time is I'm absolutely certain I'm overeating. You know, I've got bad habits. I'm overly reliant on food, stuff like that, right? Okay, prove it. So here's your total daily energy expenditure. This is the amount of protein that you need to eat. This is the amount. That's what we do with Eat to Perform. We'll provide people with a customized plan. So now all of a sudden we give this person, you know, the, we, we add it up. Their total daily energy expenditure is supposed to be 2,400 calories. We give them the plan, and they're like, I'm not losing weight. Well, you're not losing weight because you thought you were overeating, but you actually weren't overeating. See, what happens for most folks is they have days where they allow themselves to get out of control, but the majority of the time, they're actually somewhat responsible. They might not be responsible from the standpoint of they're eating healthy foods throughout the day, but let's say that you know you you're hungry and you go through the McDonald's drive-through for breakfast, right? You might think that that's a really bad choice, and therefore you're going to need to diet to solve the problem of you going through the McDonald's drive-through. Well, you're not really thinking of the fact that throughout the rest of the day, you made better choices or you made better choices in days coming up. Most people are not irresponsible day after day after day. And so they don't end up being as bad off as they think that they are. And if they are, then of course, once they start to eat at a regular pace, then certainly they would see not only fat loss, but they would see weight loss. And if they weren't eating an adequate amount of protein, as an example, or they were overeating fat or, or something like that, then they actually might see more uh, protein turnover through their workouts. You know, it's, it's common for people to be overly reliant on something like fast food. I can't even imagine what it would be like to constantly eat McDonald's and then try to work out. You know, it's not something that I would think of as providing me a lot of energy often, right? And so um, a lot of times as you start to move that to, you know, chicken or steak with sweet potatoes and, and you know, things like that, now all of a sudden you start to feel, you know, better. I think there is there is a mental aspect of eating whole foods as opposed to constantly relying on on um, on convenient foods and uh, you know I was gonna hope to get to a little bit of meal planning but we'll kind of hold off on that and maybe bring that up in one of the next podcasts so why don't we get to questions but but the overriding point we've covered all the scenarios right we've covered the drastically under eating scenario we've covered the the the, the you know downrated regulated metabolism scenario and then we covered the person that thinks that they're an overeater but when you actually get them eating an adequate amount of food for what they do they find out on average they weren't necessarily overeating certainly there are people who are overeating and when we get them you know eating an adequate amount of food for what they do they do see favorable results i would say that 
it's it's a spectrum for every single person, right? Sometimes, like I said, you'll have periods where you're overeating. Sometimes you'll have periods where you're under eating, and that's where establishing that baseline makes a lot of sense. So Imbal is saying, what about the opposite person who eats per the calorie plan but is still always hungry? So what he was saying is kind of the opposite of the initial scenario with the chicken and kale person. So if you're always hungry, you're, you're very clearly under eating. And so you have to look at whether or not, you know, you're eating an adequate amount for what you do. Now, I don't know your scenario and we can't really kind of dive into the specifics of your scenario. But my, my thought process is if you're coming from a background where you think for yourself to <coughs> lose excessive bodily fat, you have to undereat, maybe you're being too extreme. Now, there are times where being hungry matters and you are going to you know want to have that as part of the equation but the the good majority of the time that should not be the case and what you're really talking about when we're talking about you know eat to perform in the way that we sort of teach people on the on the periods where you're going down we're essentially managing discomfort and you know, one of the things, you know, one of the strategies and, you know, we'll kind of move on to the other questions, but one of the strategies I use is I eat breakfast a little bit later in the day because if I'm going to be uncomfortable, I'd rather be uncomfortable in the morning rather than the evening so I can, um, you know, get to sleep and, uh, you know, like I said, the majority of the time I'm not in a deficit, but when I am in a deficit, it's really about managing that discomfort and sort of knowing that there's an end of the road. What happens for a lot of folks is they think to themselves, I've got 40 pounds to lose. And if they don't break it up into usable chunks, they're doing themselves a disservice because what ends up happening is they're going to get frustrated with what you're saying and being uncomfortable. But if you knew that, you know, Fridays are the days that you don't need to be uncomfortable, or if you knew that in six weeks, you're actually going to be taking a considerable break from deficit way of eating. Now, all of a sudden your adherence to that plan becomes much easier. What, happens in the scenario where you're constantly hungry eventually you're going to eat and so that's not that's not um something that you don't want to have a plan for you want to have you want to have that as part of your overall goal so keep that in mind he did he did um have a follow-up i'm going to get to that real quick before we get to the other Three or four questions, and then we shut it down. Sorry, I'm <clears throat> still still a little sick, and hopefully getting over it pretty soon. But man, it's getting frustrating. How often you recommend to get data? Scale picture measurement every day, once a week, every two weeks, once a month. Um, I do it every day. 
And, uh, you know, I find that actually there's, there's, there's data that, that proves this, you know, the, the company Withings that, that does, you know, scales, they, you know, they actually put out an article recently of the people that weigh themselves daily compared to the people that weigh themselves sporadically and the people that weighed themselves daily had considerable more weight loss, fat loss than the other folks. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense because, you know, for the people that aren't doing it as often, they might have some reasons why they're not doing that often. So I think if you kind of hold yourself, but for you, you know, maybe, maybe once a week, you know, works for you. Um, I know there are people that do that. My wife, you know, kind of prefers that method. I would say that it's not vastly superior to my method. Um, I would say actually that my method tends to be a little bit better judging by, um, my personal, I guess what I'm saying, I'm, I'm not really trying to compare myself to my wife, but for me, doing it once a week would not work, I guess is the best way to say that. April's smiling because she knows I just, I would say, <laughs> I'm just burying myself and having to dig up. I would say for, for me, and they can generally get away with uh, once a week. Um, although, like you, for yourself, you're in a fat loss cycle, so you know, weighing more frequently is kind of part of the process. But if you're not, I would say once a week, men can usually get away with because they don't have as many fluctuations. I generally recommend Friday mornings. People are normally better Monday through Friday versus the weekends. Don't weigh Monday morning after you've socialized all weekend. But for females, I actually recommend because we fluctuate a whole lot more than males do. Um, I would recommend at least a couple of times a week. So maybe Tuesdays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, or whatever. A couple of times a week generally is what I recommend for females if you're not comfortable with weighing daily. Um, for the measurements, um, I, I generally would say every two to three weeks, and then I would say probably photos every 30 days, 30 to 45 days, I think would be good. Yeah, one thing that's interesting, and I've talked about this in the last couple of podcasts, is that I, I there are periods where I don't weigh myself, and the reason why I don't weigh myself is because I'm trying to gain weight in that scenario. And if I weigh myself often as I'm trying to gain weight, what will happen for me um, in a lot of instances is I will subconsciously keep my weight down. And so I try not to do that when I'm trying to gain weight. But I would actually, I would actually kind of differ on what you said, April. Um, even in a scenario where it was kind of a normal time, I do find that um, it is better to have some level of, of daily, you know, checking the scale for myself. Like I said, everybody's a little different, but some level of awareness there is better than no awareness at all. That's yeah. the only no, I, I would absolutely agree that if you're comfortable with the scale, then, then daily, you know, daily weigh-ins I think are ideal. Um, I think what a lot of people don't understand about the scale and they let that number, you know, make or break them for the day, you know, is that in general, I think a lot of people just don't know that you want to see up and down fluctuations. You know, yes. you want to see down, 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 or you never want to see the exact same weight over and over again. 
you know, you want to see those up and down fluctuations. And I think that people panic when, you know, you have a heavy deadlift session and you're sore, you know, your body's, your muscles are going to retain water in an effort to heal, heal themselves, you know, and you can get on the scale the next day and you're up three pounds and automatically you're freaking out thinking, you know, I'm doing something wrong, you know, and of right. course, you know, the question is, is you, you haven't eaten enough food to gain three pounds of fat overnight. You know, it's normal, you know, it's completely. And what we will talk about when we talk about deficits is that actually, um, you know, some level of, of up is actually going to be favorable for down when you're constantly seeing yourself at the same weight and you're just eating less and less and less, that tends to be a sign of some level of dysfunction and you kind of need to work from there. So kind of keep that in mind. But as we you know, walk people through kind of the wave method, which is what we use or, or gradually awesome or whatever, you know, we will often say that the scale being up is something that's going, you know, slightly up is going to be favorable as long as you're sort of keeping an eye on that overall. So Regina's saying, I joined three weeks ago, but no one has contacted me about my eating plan. Is that something I'm personally responsible for? I think what happens for a lot of people is they buy various plans. And so depending on what plan you have, um, you know, would be the answer to your question. And we don't really know that, but I'll tell you what you can do. You can go to info at eatperform.com and then they can look at what plan you have. Uh, certainly if you're in the forums right now, and you have an onboarding team messaging you, message those people and say, hey, I never got my plan. Who do I email about that? And they will set you up with that. So that is a very good question. So Brian is saying, when counting our carbs, do we worry about net carbs or just total carbs for our daily allowance? This used to be very controversial. I actually don't think it's very controversial at all, though. Uh, net carbs... I think matters only when you're overeating, you know, kind of like the chicken and kale scenario from earlier, where you're artificially messing with your hunger si signaling by eating too much fiber. So what is too much fiber? You know, anywhere from 30 to 50 is sort of acceptable, but we'll often see people that are eating 95 grams of fiber. And, you know, what they're ultimately trying to do, as Brian is talking about, and, and I don't want to get super into this because we're coming to the end of the podcast but basically net carbs is the amount of carbs that you have subtracting fiber so if you eat 200 grams of carbs and you eat 95 grams with fiber you've only netted 105 the only problem is is that you've also negatively affected the uptake of those carbohydrates which is favorable for um, hydrating your muscles and allowing for better workouts over time. That's a big part of what we're talking about and what people are sort of missing. As an example, uh, once again, as an example. Um, but this weekend, you know, like I said, I've been a little sick. And what I did was sort of counterintuitive. On Friday night, I worked out, went on date night, had a salad, a little bit of pizza, nothing too huge. Weighed myself the next morning, and my weight was only up 0.2. So um, the very next day, usually on kind of a kind of a up day, I want my weight to be up 
roughly two to three pounds. And since I have been a little sick, I went and had pho, which pho is Vietnamese soup, bone broth soup, you know, rice noodles, lots of sodium, and then voila, you know, the very next day I weighed myself and I was up two and a half pounds. And then, you know, now I'm starting the process of kind of coming down. But the the sodium, the the rice noodles, all those things are going to be favorable as it's going to be to help me, you know, get over this sickness. And so me allowing myself to be dehydrated from the day before wasn't going to be super favorable for me to actually kick this sickness. Um, it is kind of a tricky thing, you know, like when do you call it and when do you focus on the sickness over – you know, over, you know, a deficit cycle, I'll let you know when I figure it out, right? I mean, you know, in general, I'm trying to stick to the plan and hopefully, you know, I can kick this bug. My wife has actually been through it. You know, it took her about a week and a half to, to kick it. It's been about a week for me, so I have probably a few more days. Getting really frustrating because I'm not able to work out the way that I normally would like to work out. So I'm trying to do what I can but that is basically not a whole lot. So good question, Brian. But in terms of net carbs, we don't tend to think of it. We do ask people to log it, though, so we know that they're not eating 95 grams of fiber, and we can maybe pull that down to a more reasonable level. Any thoughts on that, April, before we move on to the next questions? Um, absolutely agree. Fiber is very, very healthy, healthy for optimal diet. Digestion, um, but you certainly don't want to go overboard. Okay, so cause some serious issues. <laughs> yes, lots of issues. So Brittany's saying, new to eat form, former athlete, used to eating a lot of food, being around uh, 20 to 22 percent, 5'8, 134. Only been on ETP for a week, gained or lost anything, but on my off days, not working out, I usually get quite hungry. Any suggestions? Well, the simplest suggestion is going to be to eat, but the, the, the longer suggestion is that you're probably hungry and it's probably causing you to work out at 80% the following day. And so you want to have, you know, what I think happens for a lot of people, especially people that are just starting to form, they start to hear about metabolic flexibility and so they think to themselves, okay, well, on my workout days, I'm going to eat 250 grams of carbohydrates, and then on my rest days, I'm going to eat zero, right? Or, you know, and, and to use that as an extreme. And the problem is, is that if you eat too low carbohydrate, it will carry over into your next days. And like Brittany's saying, you could end up being hungry. So what I would play with, you know, typically we'll say if, if somebody's eating 250 grams of carbohydrates, we'll have them you know, come down to probably 150 grams of carbohydrates on rest days, you know, depending on male or female. And if you're struggling in a way that Brittany's talking about, we might move you to 200 grams of carbohydrates to see how that feels. And so hopefully that answers the question. But she said, not at all, 155 grams of carbs for off days from what the coaches said, and I'm still hungry. What I would do in that scenario, especially if you're not gaining weight, is maybe up your carbs, you know, to, she said 155, up those to 180, see how that feels. The other thing I would say is that it might not be carbs. You know, if, uh, 
if your fats are artificially low and you're used to a little bit more fat, you know, fat is certainly going to help with satiety and, and is going to help with hunger signaling. So you might want to play with 25 grams worth of carbs first. And then if that doesn't feel right, then add 10 more grams of fat. The whole time, though, what I really want you to do is keep an eye on the scale. If it's up a pound or two, no big deal. But if we start to get to two, three, four pounds, now all of a sudden you're kind of overeating your metabolism and we want to kind of balance that out a little bit. We might want to do that by some level of cycling. Like she's saying, as an athlete, depending on your level of athleticism, you know, you can still overeat your metabolism. And so, you know, in the beginning, as you're making all these changes, you really, really want to be cautious because you don't want to be one of these people that go, you know, I didn't check the scale, I wasn't cautious, I really enjoyed my cheesecake and beer, and now all of a sudden I'm 15 pounds heavier. And that's not really the goal of what we're trying to do for people. And hopefully that's sort of making sense. So if you're new and it seems like a lot of you guys are, welcome and make sure that you're using the forums to its fullest potential because there's a lot of folks in there. Every single one of them has done, you know, eat and perform, and most of them are some of our best success stories. So rely on them. That's going to be super helpful for your journey and your understanding. And then we do up to four of these podcasts each week. You're welcome to join most of them. Two of them are actually quick starts, so that's kind of an upgraded service. You can look into that on our email info at eatperform.com to find out more about that. But usually if you're just starting off, you don't necessarily need that. But if you're coming from maybe an extreme deficit way of eating, it might be a little bit helpful for you to have that. So uh, quick start is basically what that's called. All right, guys, I appreciate everybody listening. April, did you want to say goodbye to everybody? Good night, everyone. Alrighty, and we will see you guys on the forums and in the groups on Facebook. Talk to you later.